This is part two of my interview with disco legend DC LaRue. Take it away, the David Bowers. From Brooklyn, New York, where the kids have been busy shaking their groove things, it's Blazin' Rye Radio. Tonight on the show, Ryan welcomes disco music legend DC LaRue. Be sure to catch DC performing hits like Cathedrals and Let Them Dance at the last New Year's Eve disco extravaganza this New Year's Eve at the El Dorado in Cody Island. And now, the man who once got hung up on by Mickey Rooney, but then haven't we all? Ryan Holmes! song there was a song that um it was very i think it, maybe it was one of the original demo songs that you did with the piano voice demo in new haven that you sent to dick clark and and there was it was a whole corrupt thing. no no that no that was the that was the scepter records thing oh this was later yeah so i had bob and i uh, went into um the studio now bob was so hot with the four seasons mm-hmm. and um and I go into this, you know, the Four Seasons were a white act. Yeah. But they sounded black, if you will. And he sold the record to VJ Records out in, in, in the Midwest. And, and he didn't tell the owner of VJ that it was a white group. They took the record thinking it was black. They got, immediately, it was, it was a hit out of the box on all the R&B stations, all the black stations, all the pop stations. In two weeks, it was a, a hit. It, it just oh, just exploded, exploded, yeah. and uh, and when the record company found out that the Four Seasons were white, they almost shit. They were, <gasps> when they got the photograph, that, and they're putting the album together, they said, "What the fuck is this?" Because <laughs> they assumed it was a black group, and they were promoting with the black stations as a black group. So, so, so Bob got very confident with himself. You know, he, he can. Well, he had that success with the seasons, the white act. And so Florence Greenberg, who owns Scepter Records, adored Bob. You couldn't, you could not adore Bob, <laughs> first of all. So um, she uh, said to Bob, "Anything you want to give me, I'll put out." So Bob and I went in, and we did "Faded Roses," and uh, which was a really hot track. It was, it, it was like a, a like a Dion thing, you know, "Run Around Sue" kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, once again, not terribly original for me, because you know, but. That's what was happening at the time. So, so he it was like a Dion thing, a do kind of like a white do up Dion thing. And so, right. um, he sold it to Scepter. Uh-huh. And I can remember, uh, I said, Bob, that's a black label. They've never had a white act on it. it was before B.J. Thomas, because B.J. Thomas was the first successful white act. But that was a couple of years later. So then, uh, Bob said, No problem. We just don't tell you that you're white. I said. They're gonna know I'm white. <laughs> Excuse me, I sound like the only white boy in town on that record. Uh-huh. So then, uh, so he said, "Don't worry about it. Florence will handle it." So Florence tried to get um, the record play on the black radio stations, which were where her game was. That's where she got her records broken. And then, uh, you know, she didn't really have to think about the Clark so much, even though he was the most, the only game in town. Yeah. With the music business. Because if she got enough reaction of the black stations, like with the Shirelle records, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, he ha- he had to play it. He had to because he'd look foolish if he didn't. If it was bouncing up the charts with bullets, and it was like top twenty with a bullet, and he wasn't playing it, so there, there was a way to cajole Clark into playing her records. Uh, 
without too much of a problem with the payola thing. Because what was, see, I hadn't heard of this payola. It was like a corrupt uh, system sure. where you paid to get your you songs should, on the radio. Yes, you paid to get your songs on the radio. I should what? Google it. Google it. <laughs> okay. Payola, very big. The people got people ruined Alan Freed's career. It got sent to jail. And Dick Clark was a part of this. <laughs> yes. Okay. <clears throat> but Dick Clark had it really covered up. He had it. I mean, you had to have known him for years. Yeah. A personal friend. Bernie Bennett and the people at Chancellor and Cameo and whatever. Swan. Those Philadelphia labels, they grew up together. That's where Dick started out. You know, they were chummy, friendly. Fun. So all their arrangements were made before Dick even got that important. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to be in the publishing. Sure. So um, then when uh, Dick broke nationwide, went uh, all of ABC nationwide, and got millions and millions of listens in one play on Clark's show, Connie Francis, uh, that uh, Who's Sorry Now, she she was kicked around MGM for, for five years before that. And and uh, one play on Clark and she was a star, you know. Yeah. So uh, she was very good, though. I loved Connie Francis. Yeah. So, so I saw her open for Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons in, on Coney Island, one of the free concerts a couple summers ago. How was she? Frankie was great. Yeah. <laughs> Connie was okay. Okay. Yeah. She was wonderful. She's, she's gone through a lot. Nervous breakdown after nervous breakdown. Yeah. Dependency on pharmaceutical drugs. Very drug dependent, whatever. Yeah, so, she was our. She was our. Okay. <laughs> so in any case, it's a wonder she's even performing. Hello. So, <laughs> yeah. so what happened was... Um, uh, oh, yeah. So Florence couldn't get my record on, on R&B stations. She didn't have a deal with Clark. She had been she had been coasting along with her successes because she would be able to cross them over, mm-hmm. you know. And, and her her playground was the black radio and the payola, Jocko and Philadelphia, whatever. So it didn't work with me. And as much as Bob liked to believe that um, he had all that power with the seasons, and you know, and talk her into putting it out, a white boy record, she couldn't do anything. And so they had they decided to have a big meeting with uh, Dick Clark down at Bookbinders in Philadelphia. Very cordial and nice, but there was no way to. People were being, the phones were being tapped. The FBI were watching these people. Uh-huh. Really? Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> and there was no way that they could wiggle their way around, getting Clark to pay it and finding a way to like grease his palm or whatever. And I just sat there, and it was a shame because of all the records I had that really held that I did for Bob that really had the most potential. Yeah, and uh, it was the closest one. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was a fine line, but if it got the radio play, it would have been a big hit. It in your interview with Mike Miller. He played part of it. Sounds like an incredible song. Oh, yeah, it is a good record. Yeah. And um, so Florence couldn't get that to happen even with her machine? Yeah, no, I couldn't get, she couldn't get me on black radio. Excuse me. <laughs> okay. I want to talk about a guy who um, has come up on the show before when we had Tommy James on. And... Um, I heard you say in that same interview I just mentioned with Mike Miller about Morris Levy. Uh-huh. Uh, Morris was a wonderful, legendary, handsome, sexy Jew from the Lower East Side. He sure was. And he was a very <laughs> dangerous gangster and part of the Gambino Age shoot you in a minute. family. Now, Grind you up and feed you the alligators. Huh? <laughs> he yeah. would. Yeah. So I don't know if he sounds like a real... Wonderful. Was he a wonderful oh, well, guy? First, by the time I got to Morris, see, Dennis yeah. ran out of money with Pyramid Records. He mm-hmm. went to Morris to get more money. And Morris is like an octopus. You know, Morris was never, he always said he's not an A&R man. Mm-hmm. 
he wouldn't know if it bit him in the ass, but if you give it to him for nothing and you don't expect to get paid, he'll put it out. Right. So, speaking of corrupt. <laughs> so, um, Dennis went to Morris. And uh, I, Morris by that time was a legend. He had worked with Count Basie and Dinah Washington and Tito, and Tico and Tito Puente and name it, name it. He had been, uh, he went from the, working in the coat room at the Birdland to managing the club to running all the jukeboxes on the west side of Manhattan. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Uh, Buddy Knox and Jimmy Bowen and, and uh, one hit after another. This man was incredible. And Tommy James. Uh, Tommy James was a big hit out of Texas that he just went in. Uh, it was an independent record. Did Tommy tell you about that? It was like an independent record. Uh, Hanky Panky. Yeah. yeah, and Morris went in and purchased it. Like he did with. Um, oh, he wanted to do things with 96 Tears, Question Mark of the Mysterian. But Neil Bogart got to him first, and Neil Bogart put it on, on, on Buddha, or whatever it was. So in any case... Did you know Tommy James? No, I never met him. Never met him. I never met him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happened was, is that uh, uh, Morris, I met Morris, and I was, he walked into the studio to listen to the product, because he wanted to hear what Dennis was talking about, if he was going to invest the money. And his presence just knocked me out. He was excited, as exciting in person as Bob Crew was. Different, but just as exciting. You won't put, it's hard to believe, but this is my, you know, people say, oh, you're being silly. He was a gangster. He was a dangerous man. I said, no, 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 let's be, let's be honest. You know, this is the kind of music I write. This is the kind of lyric I, I write. You can say all those things, but on top of that, in addition to that, Morris Levy was hot. Oh, my God. He walked into that recording session, six foot two, black shark skin suit, and some jewelry. Oh, please. I was, that's Morris Levy? Uh-huh. You know. Yeah. And once again, so, um, and from the minute I met him, shook his hand, I was so proud to be working with him. He was a legend. And this is I, when Roulette absorbed par- uh, par- pyramid. pyramid. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I, see, this, look at how I looked at it. I, I was still dealing with Dennis. Mm-hmm. Morris was the money man. I couldn't wait. Morris would take me out to dinner, and we'd go to the Friars Club, and, and how's, how's the feel, kid? How's the feel, kid? He used to talk like that. I used to love to be with that man. I used to tell me stories about Dinah Washington and about, and about uh, uh, voice doesn't Peggy sound Lynn. that sexy. Well, gangster voice. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I, just, I just loved being in his company. He was such fun. I mean, he was dangerous. But as long as you were, you know, gangsters are the best hosts and hostesses in the world. You know, they treat you like gold. Yeah. Unless, until you cross them, you know. Right. And, and then they kill you. So, but, so with Morris, and then, uh, uh, but like I said, and the fact that Morris, and Morris, he said to me, he said, the cathedral was broke wide open. And then when the indiscreet record, the 45-inch, he thought I was crazy doing that record with the limited edition 12-inch. And then a couple weeks later, he says, I've never seen anything fucking like it. He says, I don't, they're playing it in all the black neighborhoods. They're, they're playing it in the street. You know, he, he, could, he said, I don't even fucking understand what kind of music you're making. More <laughs> to me. But you know what? He never gave me a budget for an album. And Dennis Gannam tried to steal from Morris and got... I disappeared one night. One just one night, he disappeared. Called me. T dance came out, uh-huh. and Dennis called me. Um, what does that mean? Like tea bagging? No, the T dance uh-huh. record, my album, yeah. no, the one I, you can't get. Uh-huh. It's unavailable. It's so rare. So T dance came out, and I got a call from Dennis in the middle of the night, and he says, uh, he says, I think Morris thinks I've been a bad boy. 
He said, I have to leave town for a few weeks. He said, I'll call you when I get myself together. About 2 o'clock in the morning. I never heard from him again. Never heard from the man again. His wife and his daughter moved out of town. They moved back to Massachusetts, where her family was from. He just totally disappeared. I still don't know what happened to Dennis Gannon. Well, that's what people would do when they got in trouble. Wouldn't, didn't one of the Four Seasons wind up having to go to Vegas that's and right. stay there That's forever? right, Tommy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Tommy DeVito. Tommy, Tommy yeah. Because <laughs> of his gambling and gambling behind everybody's back. Nobody knew it. Nobody yeah. knew it. He was gambling all this fucking... They were making a fortune. They were mm-hmm. the biggest act in the world. They were performing every night in the week around the world at huge stadiums. And got, Tommy was gambling all his money plus, you know, to the gangsters. Yeah. And, and he finally he couldn't pay him off. Frankie paid uh, for Tommy, that's the true story, out of his own pocket yeah. to, to save his ass from being thrown in the river and have his legs broken. That's crazy. Well, so here we go. Um, so Morris is, um, I go to Morris, mm-hmm. and uh, it was like he didn't know what I was doing, yeah. but it was so successful he gave me carte blanche. And people would say, how much are you spending on this album? I said, no budget. <laughs> you know, I, really, uh, I, uh, whenever I needed money, I'd go, I never saw a royalty statement. But if I needed money, I'd go, Morris, I need some money. he say, how much you want, kid? And write me a check. And uh, I would fly back and forth on the Concorde to Paris and run around Europe. And I lived the life of a millionaire without any royalties. But, and Morris never said no to me. Never said no. Of course, I never fucked over him. I knew what I was dealing with, but he never said no to me. He never did anything to me, maybe I was an exception, that would make me want to do something bad to him. You know, and I saw a lot of people meet their demise with Morris Levy. And when he passed away, um, uh, I felt bad. I had a, a lunch on a, with his secretary, and, uh, and I said, you know, Karen, I said, uh, Karen Grosso, her name was. I said, Karen, I said, I'm going to miss the man. She says, well, everybody at the funeral was very ambivalent. I didn't go to the funeral. And she said, and it was very strange, a very awkward feeling about everybody who was present. He was a bad guy. And I said, well, you know, Karen, I'm going to miss him. He always treated me like a prince. And I said, I have nothing bad to say about that guy. And she said, well, about royalties? I said, listen, he never paid anybody. I wasn't the only one. I was part of the, that thing, the business thing. But he never had, I only had to ask him once for money and I got it. So, Morris was a fabulous person, you know. It seemed to really hit his artists hard when he died. I know that at the beginning of Tommy James's book, he talks about he was about to go on stage and then he gets word that uh, Morris died and he was about to be interviewed for a local newspaper or something. And... Tommy James, I think, delayed the show, and he was like, "How much time you got?" Because he all he, he was so taken aback, because I guess you know how much Morris Le- Levy meant to him, but also how much he screwed him over. So ambivalence is a good same, word. The same, yeah. yeah. Um, didn't wasn't there one point when Morris had kind of almost had your back with this guy David Braun? Yes, he did. Uh-huh. Well, that David was uh, when Cass- uh, Neil Bogart was dying, and uh, HIV related. And which was, has been still kept very hush hush, you know. And not, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. But you know, whoever wants to hear it. And and so I he he, he was going he was going uh, uh, he was dying. And and then um, uh, uh, so they he he sold the he sold the label. It was still kind of hot. 
funky town. They were overshipping. It was, you know, but they had gotten to a point where disco wasn't selling again. They were spending more money than they were making. Neil was dying, so they sold the the, the, the label to Paladar Polygram. And uh, and Bruce Bird was there for a couple. And then they closed the offices completely in Hollywood. Everything moved to New York City. And I had one more album to do for for Casablanca contractually. And um, and Moore's called, and we got the album done. Uh, but David didn't want any part of me. You know, David was Bob Dylan's manager. He comes from he came from that Greenwich Village folky pokey thing. Hated hated disco with it. Hated anything that was tinged with homosexuality. They hated all of it. The trappings, he was like an ugly old Jewish man. And so um, uh, he didn't want me on the label. He said, tell that fucking faggot he was on the speakerphone. But Morris did stand up for me, you know, he did. And uh, <clears throat> it didn't matter. Morris thought I was a very talented man. That must and, feel great to have like a gangster have your back like that. It was great, <laughs> but I wasn't surprised. Yeah. Morris Levy and I got—we just got along very well. Yeah, but apparently this brawn guy was. Uh, he was Morris Levy was jacking. gotten just out. He uh, he died of um, prostate cancer, but he had gone in for a. a, a um, I was doing the 12-inch remix for the Star Baby album, Boys Can't Fake It, and uh, so much for LA. And I tried to get the money. He wasn't in the offices anymore. He had just come out of the hospital. This was, a few years before he died, he hung on a little bit more, but he was very sick. And um, uh, I went up to the secretary, Phil Carl, who was up there, and I said, uh, "What the money?" And he said, "Well, we didn't get to go ahead for Morris. Morris Levy would have just gotten out of the hospital." And I said, "Are you going to embarrass me like this? Like the, the record company, Casablanca, was going out of business, and and I thought it was my only opportunity to make a double-sided 12-inch." Because Mark Simon had been there, and all those years there were only single-sided 12 inches, one side only. <laughs> so I was just my, since it was going to be the last 12 inch for the for the label that I had anything to do with, I wanted a double-sided 12 inch, the first double-sided 12 inch, you know, a little secret thing that I wanted. Sure. So on one side it was like, uh, it was Boys Can't Fake It and uh, the remix of, of So Much for L.A. So uh, there was no... There was no PO, purchase order, for my session to go in and remix it with Aaron, with Aaron. And um, he said, well, if you have the nerve, call Morris, here's his number. He was on Park Avenue. And so I called him up, and he answered the phone. He was, he was really sick. And I said, Morris, I said, he said, what the fuck are you calling me for? Uh, and I said, well, I said, you know, you forgot to do a PO for the Casablanca 12-inch. And I said, I promised them they would have it next week, the remix. He says, you fucking call me about that. And I said, yes. I said, are you going to embarrass me with those people? He says, no, I'll call now. I'll give you the P.O. <laughs> like that. Wow. And he just got out of the hospital. That's how Morris treated me. That's great. It, it was great. Yeah. I have like three more things I want to talk about. One is this concert that you had coming This is going to go for three hours. Three how long have we been here? Yeah, yeah. Do, do you, are you bored with yourself? No, I'm fine. <laughs> but how are you going to edit this? It's going to be part one and part two. Yeah, we How long is your show? The show can be up to an hour and a half long. Oh, okay. We can edit a lot of this out. Yeah, but, or not. I've done interviews like this. It was 6.30, 7.30. Oh, it's an hour and a half. I'll, in, I'll edit this part out, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. So, uh, this concert you have coming up yeah. um, in Coney Island, New Year's Eve. Now, 
Isn't it the same guy who first, the first DJ to play Nikki. Angels in a club is the same guy who Absolutely in right. Nikki okay. Siena. So tell me about this show that's coming up and your, your friendship with Nikki. Well, Nikki and I go back 40 years. He was the first one. He, he happened to be, as it, as it were, the first person who played, actually played cathedrals in the club for the first time. And uh, the promotion man that I met up at uh, Roulette, Steve D'Aquisto, who then started dragging me around town to the discos, as he was the first one to take me to all the important clubs, like the gallery, Nikki's gallery, like David Mancuso's loft, you know, whatever. And um, he uh, he knew Nikki, and, and of course he was at the session for cathedrals, and he was a part of the conceptual thing, because he, and he knew that. He knew he was a big part of it. But coming out of the session, I mean, it was... Everybody was so overjoyed because it was such a so much of a better record than anybody thought it would ever be. You know, it was like it was like ah, flying. You know, and so um, he took a, 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 an acetate and he uh, took it to Nikki one weekend. The weekend, the very out of the studio, made the acetate, took it to Nikki. What is an acetate? An acetate kind of disease. Yes, it is. <laughs> and if you catch it, you don't want to lose it. You want to keep it. Uh, and that's an yeah. And that's the tape is is a is a virgin record where you can just you put the thing on and you play the tape and you make a single copy of the record. And you only play it once and never come never plays again. No, you can play it four or five or six times, but you and that's it, does, it. it doesn't have a big life. It doesn't okay. Have a life. So he took the acetate of the twelve inch of cathedrals mm-hmm. and gave it to Nikki. And Nikki always says, "Well, you know, he was because he because once Nikki starts." He's a sober man now, too, but Nikki. I think that's why we're still alive. We both got sober about 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, so um, uh, yeah, so he, Nikki was getting ready for the, you know, spiking the punch, getting ready, taking his black views or whatever, and Steve presented Nikki with the record, and and just by happenstance, Nikki had a minute or two to listen to it before the club opened at midnight, and uh, or eleven. Him or whatever it was, and so he listened to it and he loved it. He says, "Okay, I'll play it." And so he just went and he played it. But he played it like four or five times that night. And Nikki always says, "By the time they left at seven o'clock in the morning, it was a hit, at, at least at the gallery." So he was the first one to play it. Yeah. Wow! And and now forty years later. Forty years later. Jeez, forty. How does that feel? Fortieth anniversary of cathedrals. Wonderful. It does. Uh, I would. I am glad I'm alive. I mean, what are the options? And uh, also, I've, I've lived to see, in 40 years, I've lived to see, if you can, in the 80s, in the 90s, the late 80s and the 90s, in the early 2000s, I wouldn't have dreamed that would be happening. Mm-hmm. That the reinterest would be there, you know, that the play would be there, that I'm making royalties now on radio play, satellite radio play, on AM, FM radio play, I just, on internet radio, whoever thought that that it would see a, a, a resurgence like it is, like a, a whole rebirth of the record, and all my, all my career, too, my career, and everything I ever did, and one thing leads to another, and and uh, I'm just overjoyed that it hasn't been lost, because it could very well have been lost, sure. but the only reason is, and I always say this, it would have been lost if it weren't for the internet. It would have. And the quality of the music. Well, the quality of the music doesn't always seem to matter, because I'll tell you something, I know a lot of fabulous records that, that the quality of the music is just the best. I mean, and there's no reason why an 
in my mind, that this thing wasn't such a smash, but totally lost. Fall between the cracks and never to be heard from again. So it doesn't mean, the quality, thank you for the compliment, but it doesn't mean jack shit. It's, you know, it is, it's luck. It's being lucky. lucky. You know, you just mentioned on Sirius, right? I searched you on Twitter today, and there was a tweet from some guy saying, Whoa, Cathedrals by DC LaRue on Sirius XM. What a, th- what a flashback, or what a throwback I'm having. And so I liked the tweet, you know, when you press the heart. Sure, yeah, yeah. I liked it. Yeah. And then he wound up writing, to, I guess he checked the thing, and he clicked the link to the webpage, and he says... Oh, just read your uh, blog, DC Larue. Seriously, really? And I said, "Yep, this Thursday." And he was very excited. He liked the tweet. Yeah, yeah. I don't know who he was, but um, they're out there. Yeah, they they're are. They are. Um, the thing, the thing that uh, um, that I'm happiest with is that, uh, like, I have my radio show, my Disco Juice Radio Show on oh, NewtownRadio.com yeah. every Saturday night. Every Saturday night from six to nine. And what's that website again? NewtownRadio.com. Okay. Now, Disco Juice. Uh, they can do the demographic thing. They're at the station with the Life 365, you know, and who's listening and where they're listening and whatever. I have listeners in the, all around the world, every country you can think of. And uh, they do an age demographic too, and, and, and about 60% of my listeners are under the age of 35. Mm-hmm. 65%. Isn't that fabulous? Yeah. These are listeners who weren't even alive when the field was, was released or recorded. That's great. It's 40 years ago. Including me. I Including you. <laughs> there you go. Including you. Uh-huh. So, that's it. I'm holding up to your father. So, a little bit more respect here. A little bit more little respect. Bit. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> the, um, apologize for everything. The, um, what was I going to say? The, the, um, 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 oh, the indiscreet. The, um, you've explained this to me before, uh, because, some, you know, a lot of my listeners know that I rap, um, but... You've told me this before about something about a break and indiscreet being some yeah. revolutionary thing. I've never understood the story yet, so explain it to me like I'm five years old. Well, I was I went in to um, uh, do a remix of Face of Love for a 12-inch, limited edition 12-inch 45. And we did the remix of Face of Love. And we had extra time in the studio, Sterling Sound. And, uh, Is that New York? Yes, you're in New York. <clears throat> and there was like a little... Eight beat Arab thing going on in the middle of the original industry, mm-hmm. and I would get this is back in the day, you know. And I'm a sober man now, but I would get so high, <laughs> I would get so high listening to my own music as well, and uh, I'd be coke, and, you know, drinking and sniffing poppers, and that break would come on. Were you so tripped out you forgot it was you at some point that you were listening to? No, I always knew it was me. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so, and I heard that break, and I always. And I'd play it and I'd go by too fast. I, too fa- I wanted to hear more. I wanted to hear more. And so uh, we were there sitting in the studio at Sterling, the editing, the mastering lab. And, and I said, uh, I, let's just do a, a, a re edit on this break. And I said, I'd like to speed up the track a tad. And I said, you know, because that was the, the, the cut and paste, copy, cut and paste, the, the tape, the actual two tap tape. Tedious. Now all you do is press a button and click and duplicate yourself. You know, it was a dream. It's a dream now, but yeah. uh, it was difficult work back then. Because no computers. Oh, none. No, yeah. you take the actual physical two-track analog tape and then razor blade and slice it. You, you copy it and paste it and then copy it and then slice it and paste it. And you would do this yourself? No, the engineer would do it. Okay. I couldn't do that. Neither could Aaron. 
Yeah, do it. it sounds very complicated. So I'm there, and, and so I'm trying to explain it to Aram, and Aram said, uh, I don't know what you're talking about, but we'll try it. See, this wonderful Aram. If it had been somebody else, Aram would say, if it had been somebody else, Bob Crew, they'd say, oh, you're out of your mind. Let's get out of here. We'll, you know, we'll get out early. We'll, not, you know, yeah. <laughs> we'll go for coffee, go for dinner. So I'm there with, with the, the engineer and uh, Jeff Dacking. He's a Facebook friend. So here we are with the cuttings. And, and so um, when it was all done, uh, between me and Jeff and Aram, they got, they got into it. And when it was all done... And with a little thing, and so uh, I loved it. It was what I wanted to hear in my apartment, so I could go home and listen to it extended. It was so selfish. It was only for me. Just for you. And Aaron looked at me and he said, um, "You know, this is not a disco break, because it wasn't. You know, disco break was that kind of stuff." And I said, oh, it's not a disco break. He said, I don't know what the fuck kind of break this is. Let's go, <laughs> let's go home. So we did it. Uh-huh. And uh, so I did the, the picture sleeve. And I, uh, 2,000 records. And I, I, I numbered everyone by hand, 2,000. And they were only going to record pools. And uh, Indiscreet was the afterthought. And so because it was limited, I knew this would happen. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen with it. But it got... Very, very collectible because there were only 2,000. Everything was marked, stamped by me personally. I, every record went through my hands. So um, I remember I, I got a gripping thing of cocaine and a bottle of vodka, and I locked myself into one of the offices up at Pyramid Roulette. <laughs> I spent the entire day. Morris would be going, Hey, what are you doing in there? Said, oh, go away. Because <laughs> he didn't know what the fuck I was doing either. Yeah. So, stamping these records and marking the cases and making sure that this was going to this record pool and that record pool, but it got very collectible. And they started selling it at the, 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 the record stores, the, the R&B, hip, dance, hip, like downstairs records, uh, rock and soul, a couple of them. The one was up on... Rock and soul right around here, right? Yeah, on yeah. They, you know, they used yeah. to be a very hip store. Mm-hmm. Downstairs records, um, and uh, but they... The black, the black dance stores with the black dance tracks were selling it from under the counter as a hot record. Mm-hmm. And unbeknownst to me, they were playing both sides. They did a thing on PBS radio about um, six months ago. I was lying in bed one morning, one Saturday morning. And they were doing a whole thing about the beginning of hop and hip hop breaks. And I said, I was lying in bed. I was going, Oh, they never talk about industry. They never talk about face of love. And the guy, the big disc jockey, my famous guy, uh, said, Oh, I'll never forget the first time face of love and DC Leroux when they played it. And I said, Oh, wow, wow they're finally remembering. <laughs> so, was this on PBS? Yeah, it was the thing. Yeah, PBS, Black History Month or something mm-hmm. last year. So, the, in any case, they started playing it, and what they would do, because I was this white boy on the label, this beautiful, this pretty little white boy, <laughs> it was a photo sleeve. They would take a, a, magic, a sharpie and blacken out the label, because the breaks on both sides were so perfect for the hip-hop DJs to go back and forth. 
And even they cooperated with the, the white boy thing by, they wanted to play it so much, they, you should see these, these DJs, they have their old records. It's all blackened out, my face on the label. And also it made it very good for them because it was a sensational record. They were playing it on the street corners up in the Bronx, South Bronx. And then, I'll never forget Steve DeCristo, once again, the DJ. Bonds was a big disco that opened up on, in Midtown, number 42nd Street. It used to be the old Bonds clothing store. It was huge. And John Addison opened it up as a competition for Studio 54. And it was popular for about six or eight months, and then it just went downhill, because it was just a huge space to, to fill. And so they started getting a black ghetto crowd. And they'd come in, they'd have little tribes, and it was huge. And you'd walk down this great big thing, and they have little tribes on, on either side, you know, little block gangs. And they'd have the, the corrugated people on, and they'd be doing the break dances to the music. And Steve dragged me in, and he says, you know, they're playing indiscreet, and they're rapping over it. And I didn't know what the hell he thought rapping over it. And he said, yeah. So he took me up, down through the crowd. It was all black, all get it. What Puerto year was Ricans. this? 78? Okay, 78. And he, um, yeah, but 78. He takes me down, and I go up into the DJ booth, and this black guy is, is playing spinning, and they've got this rapper with a mic, you know, and uh, I didn't know what was happening, and he, Steve introduces me, and Steve's a disco boy there, and DC, they're like, oh shit, DC, we're DC, we're. and the DJ gets two copies of Industry, and back to back and plays the, 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 the hip-hop bass, boom, 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 boom. And the guy starts rapping over the breaks, live. It was live, because they used to do it live, you know, in the clubs before they started making records. And I was just amazed, and I didn't even know what it was. I was, what are they doing? <laughs> I, and I, it ultimately evolved to be one of the most important hip-hop breaks ever. ever. Interesting, because at that time they were blacking out your, your face and everything. I know, I know. And now hip-hop is, I think, much more open to... It wasn't for a long time. Uh-huh. It wasn't for a long time. And so it was one of the most important... And you know, but I'll tell you something. With the, uh -huh. I went to, I go to the breaks in the summertime, the park jams, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know how they would have treated me 20 years ago, but they treat me like royalty now. They just are so nice to me. They're so cordial. And, so, and these are heavy-duty hip-hop DJs, you know? Sure. They're, and uh, the best in, on the face of the earth, and they just treat me like a... Exceptionally well. Exceptionally well. well I, I don't. I, sometimes I think that they, they still. <laughs> this one guy was. <laughs> this one guy did a, an interview. Oh, Chucky, somebody, a big DJ, and he. I, I met him at one of the park jams, and they were interviewing him, on uh, oh, uh, Red Bull, mm -hmm. the Red Bull thing, and they were interviewing this DJ, hip hop DJ back in the day. Red Bull, like the energy drink. Yeah, okay. they have the Red Bull blog, the website where they do all the interviews and whatever. Okay. And uh, I'm surprised you're not familiar with it. It's big. It's very big. They have the events in town, the Red Bull oh, Week and everything. The only thing I know about Red Bull is ladies next to me at the bar going, I want Red Bull and vodka. I know. Yeah. Started in Europe, that drink. <laughs> and so in any case... Uh, I think it's it outlawed, isn't it? They kind of outlawed Red Bull and vodka or something? I don't know. Because it has a depressant and, uh, you know, pick me up in the same drink. No, it's I know dangerous. a lot of people used to go into uh, Europe and got drunk on it. Yeah, or maybe it wasn't. They definitely outlawed for loco. For loco? Yeah. Okay. It was something like that. Yeah. And so here we are, and we're uh, at the Park Channel last summer, and I meet him for the first time. I, I don't. The DJ? Something like that. Okay. I don't want. I was. I'm tempted to say Chuck E. Cheese, but I don't want to insult the man. <laughs> you know, something like that. 
And so uh, they're talking about hip hop breaks and this and that. And uh, they bring up cathedrals and, and they bring up indiscreet. And uh, and Chuck goes into about how I think his name is Chuck. Mm-hmm. He goes into about how important it was and how it was the first two or three uh, break records that he played and how when he was a kid in the block and he was only fourteen and, blah, 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 and he ran to get it and, and he says and you know I just met DC Larue last summer at a park jam and he says you know he's just an old white man. <laughs> <laughs> old white man. Huh? He's an old white man. Uh-huh. And I said oh my goodness I'm so happy that I'm. An old white man, <laughs> as opposed to being a dead one. Yeah. You know? And, so but, you but revolutionized the, hip-hop, huh? Absolutely. Uh-huh. You're looking at the white boy. And you know, the thing <laughs> is that for a long time, um, well, by virtue of its very nature, it's it's a macho, chauvinistic, you know, yeah. antagonistic uh, ghetto thing. and uh, Rap. The, rap. Uh-huh. And the people who are part of it are black, and they have a... They have their identity in that music, and they want it to remain black as such. And they don't want some little white boy coming in, you know, and acknowledging me. For years, it's changed. Yeah, it's finally changed. Because in the end, music is universal. And the, but it's taken 35, 40 years. Well, as Ringo Starr said, time takes time, right? Time takes time. Um, the last thing I want to do, DC, is we started with vinyl, so let's uh, finish with vinyl. I'm going to show you some records that I think are relevant to you and to your story, and you just tell me a couple sentences about each one. Okay. I'll just pick at random here. Oh, we'll start with this one I found in Boston. Ah, Confessions. Well, this is the first album that I made in, in California, and it was my going Hollywood period. And the uh, first time I worked with Bob Esty, and uh, I... I loved it. Bob Stone, the engineer, brilliant. He had just come off a Frank Zappa thing. Uh-huh. Very nice. He had just come off a Frank Zappa recording session, and he fell in love with disco. And once again, I was so Bob Esty was very talented, and uh, uh, at, for this album, he's easy to work with. Uh, for but, this album. For this album. For this recording, <laughs> he hadn't he hadn't become the super star, you know, mm-hmm. self-inflated impossible to work with person yet but um it was only after you know like enough is enough and last dance and all right. <laughs> yeah. but uh and share and take me home but this is um i really feel bob stone is responsible for the brilliance of his album the engineer his mixing and his recording and his mixing um he did things with let them dance which that were just groundbreaking the 12-inch remix of Let Them Dance. Mm-hmm. And there were two records that came out at the same time, uh, I Feel Love and Let Them Dance, that changed the music industry. And uh, the reason that we don't know so much about Let Them Dance is because they wouldn't play it on the radio. They played like, I Feel Love on the radio. And it was one of your romantic lyrics. Oh, I feel love, I feel Let Them Dance was about hustlers selling drugs on the corner and what can I say? Mm-hmm. They didn't play it on the radio and it wasn't the kind of endearing lyric that would get your attention. So, But they were... But, it was successful because of Bob Esty, but really because of Bob Stone. He was a brilliant guy. Bob Stone, all right. And let's go to the... I'm just picking it random out of this bag here. Let's go to the next one. Oh, okay, so Morris Levy would be the connection Tommy here. James and the Chandels. Boy, what a hit record. I have this in vinyl. Oh, do you? He was brilliant, Tommy James. Yeah. Everything about him. He made one fabulous record after another after another. And Crimson and Clover, oh, excuse me. One of the greatest songs ever written. Ever, ever. Yeah. Ever, ever. That sounds incredible on vinyl. 
Ever. Oh, every song. Oh, excuse me. Crimson in the Clover. <laughs> I'll never forget the first time I heard that. That was one of those records where I just ran out and bought it immediately. Uh-huh. It finished, got the play on the radio. I drove and got the record. <laughs> immediately. Immediately. Like uh, Dream, Dream, Dream by the Everly Brothers, all I had to do was dream. And like Abraham, Martin, and John with Dion. Okay. Abraham, Martin, and John. Finished, I drove to Wattinger's record room and bought it. Oh, and you were like, Mrs. Like, Wattinger. Mrs. Wattinger. <laughs> Thank you. There's that one. This this was the best of Tommy James. Oh, shows. I'll tell you. And uh, we'll just do this while we're on them. I worked on the album cover for Crimson and Clover. I was wondering, you did do something. I did something. Artwork related. Yeah, right? artwork related. This is another Tommy James record. <clears throat> Hanky Panky. Well, I did the I did the Crimson and Clover one where we used the wrapping paper for the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you did the artwork for Crimson and Clover? But not through, not directly through Morris, through a company I was working with as a graphic designer. And it was like a certain special release of, of the No, it was single? the album. It was oh, the actual yeah. album, yeah. Oh, wow. The album that came out with the single, featuring the single. Oh, I see. She got the greatest hits here. It was Hanky Panky. And I think that's that's the one that really blew up, right? The first... Oh, Hanky Panky. Oh, yeah. Forget it, of course. And that not written by Tommy. Um, all right, we'll get... Let's see. Did Tommy talk about his addiction to drugs? No. Oh, yeah. I don't think he Speed did. Freak. Oh, really? Oh, like Elvis. Yeah. Oh, okay. He did talk about his faith a bit. He's a very religious man. Oh, okay. Um, about this one. Cathedrals. This is Cathedrals. Yes. Ta-da. By D.C. LaRue. Terrific. Great apple. Hey, you know, I don't... Um, when I look at it, I just... It's amazing. That, that is endured. Yeah. It really is, because I'm just, I'm so thrilled. Not only has the music endured, but this record is 40 years old, right? That, that That's actual, right. Yes, yeah. And it sounds incredible. Thank you. Um, and, about well, Here's a friend of yours. Anna Summer, Donna. Well, you know, we were, we were friendly. Uh, we were, the kind of, you know, I, I mentioned this a lot, like Frankie Valley or like, uh, we, we were never on the phone a lot. And we didn't have dinner a lot, but when we had occasion to be in each, each other's company, she was wonderful with me. We did a TV show together. Uh, we did impressive things together in Boston. Uh, she was always just, just loving and, and warm and beyond belief with me. And and I always told her the first time, you know, her "I Love to Love Your Baby" was an important turning point in my life musically. That was your first exposure <clears throat> to disco, right? <clears throat> well, that particular long disco breakdown kind of thing that sure. was happening that Giorgio did with her and I, and I couldn't wait to tell her the first time I met her I just said you know I wouldn't be doing this I wouldn't be standing here with you if it weren't the first time I heard your record dance to it in the disco and I said you're one of the reasons you're the girl honey you know <laughs> and she loved it and also but um, so professionally with her there was always a warmth and uh, a generosity I would have friends who would go to see her perform uh, like when she was performing in Vegas or something, and they mentioned my name, like at the backstage, and she'd open her arms and she'd spend time with them. Oh, DC's in my love, what's he doing? When is he going to see me? She was that kind of person with me. But there were parts of Donna I didn't like. Like what? Uh, I'm not going to say bad things about her. But because she's dead. Huh? Because she died. So you don't want to speak ill of the dead. Yeah, I don't. Uh-huh. I don't know. But, you know, it wasn't so terrible. The things I did, that annoyed me, she had a very abrasive edge to her sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and I didn't appreciate it. I guess 
but she was never that, she was never that way with me. Right. Never that way with but me. But you saw her like that with but others. I saw her in action with other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just say to myself, that's not necessary for her to act that way. You know? mm-hmm. I really would, you know. And like I have to, I have to, she never did it with me. Right. But I would see her in certain situations with other black people. And, you know what I'm saying? I, she didn't always behave so well, so very well. I see. Yeah. But that's, you know. Yeah. But as far as as far as I'm concerned, she sang her ass off, and she was just like one of. The, I did two radio shows, six hours of, of Donna Summer, and the second one, she was flawless, flawless. And I listened to her vocals today, and, and her body of work, Ryan. Uh, I mean, one fabulous track, one fabulous album after another, after another, after another, and and in person, she was just dynamite. I mean, she never stopped being great. Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah, well, she is the queen. And uh, here's another one of Forces yours. Of the night. Forces of the night. I'll take another shot of you here. Is this Yes, very nice. Very nice. A little darker there. So tell me a little bit about that. A couple sentences about Forces of the Night. Oh, this came at a very interesting time in my life. It was uh, a difficult album to do. How so? Uh, Oh, and I'm not saying anything I haven't said before with Bob Estee. He got very <laughs> difficult to work with. And you know how I always said how um, I, once I found Aram, I got used to working with people who would listen to what I had to say, yeah. even though I didn't read music. Mm-hmm. And uh, I and the people I worked with, they weren't elitist about it, and they never looked down on me because I was, <laughs> I couldn't write out the notes. Right. Well, by the time I did this album with Bob, he... He had produced Cher and Barbara Streisand, and and it all came after Confessions mm-hmm. with me. He did Confessions, all that successful stuff. He had done with Donna Summer, he did this, that, Academy Award-winning arrangements, you know, Last Dance, and, and he got impossible. He got impossible. impossible. And he couldn't, uh, he wouldn't listen to what I had to say. He did listen to what I had to say with Confessions, and working with Bob Stone. So then we went to um, another studio with another engineer, Larry Immerein, who was a sweet man, a very talented guy. But Larry was so enamored with Bob that Larry didn't listen to me, he listened to Bob. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Bob Stone, I could get Bob after the session and say, do this and do that, and Bob would go in and do it behind Bob Estes' back. <laughs> you know? And so it would come out the way I wanted to, especially the 12-inch of Let Them Dance. Um, Bob wasn't even in the studio when, when Bob Stone did that. Bob Estee wasn't even in the studio when Bob Stone did that. He must have found out when he heard the record. Well, he loved it, okay. but he wasn't there. Uh-huh. And, and Bob Stone was doing what I wanted him to do. Right. And so, but once it got to Studio, 54, studio 55, the recording studio in, in, Cal, in California, Los Angeles, and Larry Immerine, and I turned to it, and I remember when uh, it was one problem after another. And then when we finally got to, it's an amazing album. I mean, I just listened to this, and it's an entirely a few, uh, I'm just posting it, you know, to the groups. Mm-hmm. And I listened to it, it's, it was an amazing album. And in spite of it, and it's not the album I wanted it to be, and Bob knows this too, it's not the album I wanted it to be. But that being said, it's an amazing recording. And everybody did a bang-up job, okay? Now, I got to a point where we were doing the remixes 
the mixing of the album tracks. Yeah. And we were in the remix studio, and I was there with Larry. And uh, uh, it was the 12-inch remix of Hot Jungle Drums and Voodoo Rhythm. And I was sitting there with Larry, and, and I, I kept making suggestions, and he kept ignoring me. Because he was doing what he thought Bob wanted to do, not what I wanted to do. Larry didn't always ask from his elbow about a disco. He was producing uh, Pointer Sisters. Mm-hmm. You know, he, you know, um, uh, jazz people. You know, uh, uh, I could. The list goes on and on. A very important recording studio, but mm-hmm. disco, no. And so, um, I got so frustrated. I said, "Fuck this!" And I got up out of the studio and left town. And I got on a plane, I flew to Puerto Rico to party for a couple of weeks. I couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> I simply couldn't stand it. Because I, I had gotten so used to being able to work with people who would cooperate with me and, and follow my lead. And then with this album, it was like, forget it. Mm-hmm. Now, Larry was a brilliant guy. He just wouldn't listen to me. And Bob, who was just brilliant beyond belief, had gotten to a point where he was alienating me, alienating everybody around him. You know, everybody ended up hating him because it's so impossible. They don't hate him now, mm-hmm. but time takes time, you know. And people like change. Rango Star Rango said. <laughs> so, but it's a shame because, and then I went back for the last album, I went back to Star Baby with Aram mm-hmm. because I didn't want to work with anybody except Aram again. Right. And once again, that, working with Aram was a dream. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last record we'll take a look at here, how about this one? Oh, he's so cute, isn't he? <laughs> no, this is Justin I, Bieber. Justin Bieber. I, latest record. I haven't heard the whole thing. Oh, it's fantastic. You like it? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll pay attention to it. <laughs> I heard the single. Which one? What do you mean? Or Standard. Sorry? Sorry? Is that a story? Sorry? Sorry, sorry is wonderful. What do you mean is wonderful, though a bit rapey. Well, I've got to say that um, I've always been a fan. Love him. I have always been a fan, you know, yeah. and uh, even though those, uh, baby, baby, it's like, love that. This, this, I, I, you know, <laughs> simple songs, but I love it, and you know what, I admire him because he takes so much abuse and he kind of bounces back. Yeah. And do you know how hard, and I always say this, when people start dissing him, do you know how hard it must be to be Justin Bieber? Boston and, Bieber? Justin Bieber. Oh, I think Boston Bieber's the porn Busted. version. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, uh, this guy shows up. Mm-hmm. He shows up for it, for all the drama and the bullshit, and it's hard work, man. It's just hard, and being surrounded by all those people who want to touch you and grab you and whatever. Yeah. You can't love that all the time, you know, and taking all that just brutal criticism, and he doesn't deserve it. You know, he yeah. is what he is, and it's what he is is just fine, mm-hmm. you know? He's just fine. He's not trying to be Robert Plant. Right. You know, he's not trying to be... Kind of not, it's, he's just not. He's not trying to be... Fifty Cent, DC Larue, or DC Larue, yeah. and he knows what he can do, and he does it well. You know, and and uh, I just think uh, he's terrific showing up for this. So. Yeah. You know, he, I, see, I've never wanted. I talk about this too. I've never wanted to be. Um, I've been was so happy with my success in the '70s, where it led me. I've never wanted to be an industry like a Justin Bieber or Miley Cyrus. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to be in a position. To where I had to show up when I didn't feel like showing up, when I wasn't inspired to show up, because some manager's wife wants another mint coat. 
Because, because Simplona's daughter wants to go to Yale. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't want to be the he- the CEO of the Justin of the DC Little Corporation. Like he is the CEO of the Justin Bieber Corporation. A brand. You don't want to be a brand. I don't want to be a brand. Yeah. And you know what? So many people pay the, their bills because they're working around him or for him. And he's so responsible. He has to go to bed every night understanding that responsibility. If he bottoms out... You know, people people are going to be unemployed. Yeah. And it's a terrible p- place to be in. I, I would never want to be there. I would never want, I would never want to be responsible for that. And uh, so there you go. And, and, and I've always hated that. Um, I just go on and on. But I always hated that, that uh, entourage thing and all those people and, and the interference with my private life. I'm a very solitary person. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, there's one side of me and there's another side of me, but I don't like that intrusion into my purpose. Yeah. So, and, I'm very, and I'm very happy that I never went for it. And I'm not, I don't regret it at all. Mm-hmm. Not, not for a minute. I don't regret it at all. Well, I, you know, it's, you talk about <laughs> your biggest mistake in music being not doing a top 40 record, but in a way, isn't that maybe that's your, your greatest success because no one can ever accuse you of selling out. That's right. I never have. Right. I never have. Never have. Yeah. If that's if, if that's of any merit, I really haven't. I've ne- I've always been true to myself, always. But like Janice Ian, yeah, <laughs> she's never bullshitted herself either, and she's always been so upfront. I'm still in touch with her, but are you? And I remember on reading that your honesty offended a lot of people, and it, it, it did, kind it of did. reminded me and of cathedrals and, and what when, you've and done. And then she, she started. She came out very early about her being a lesbian. Uh huh. You know, she's bisexual, and she she was going. Claire was married and she stole Claire away from Claire's husband and then oh you know and then it became but it wasn't at the right time it was like 1979 1980 and and but she didn't care she was so brave about it and she you know she just carried herself off so well and I'll never get over her never get over her and because she had that courage she had the courage to talk about it and write about it and sing about it you know about real stuff and I just well she, she didn't have an impact. You know, I, I was talking to her on Facebook the other day, and I said, I hope you don't mind me. You know, things have come around, though, so people are talking to me about what my influences are. And I said, you know, you've always been one of my major influences. She said, yeah, I know it. <laughs> she said, oh, yeah, I know it. I've always known it. So modest. Yeah. <laughs> so modest. <laughs> she's, but she's still doing well. Yeah. That's but, but, you know, she has a lot of problems. Yeah. Well, the... Sh- the um Radio show is Disco Juice at NewtownRadio.com. Yep. Okay. Saturday, 6 to 9 p.m. And you can also get it on a podcast later? You can get it on SoundCloud. 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 And, and also um, uh, the, the performance. Oh, I was getting to that. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> that's the only reason we're here. <laughs> and the performance uh, is coming up. New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve and El Dorado. Is that El Dorado, right? Coney Island. It's the bumper cars place. Oh, they have the bumper cars, and that's in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, where I used York. to wake up when I drank. Used to wake up in Coney Island all the time <laughs> on, on the, the train. On the train. Yeah, sometimes with my stuff stolen, but thank goodness I was passed out. Never a violent, you know, kind of reminded me of your story. Never a confrontation. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, where can people go to get more information about this New yeah, Year's Eve Well, just event? go to nickysiano.com. M i c k y s i m o u s e m o u s e. S-I-A-N-O dot com. And everything's all there. NickySiano.com. Yeah. And uh, is there a cover charge? Yes, but go to the website. Go to the website. I don't want to scare people. <laughs> the, the, the prices come down. 
There are only a few. Uh, there's, there's limited space in there. Mm -hmm. I think there are less than 100 tickets left, so it's going to be oh, sold wow. out. I have Rochelle Fleming, who is the lead singer of First Choice, mm -hmm. Dr. Love, you know, mm -hmm. and Melba um, Moore, who's had her disco successes, and, you know, she's won every award there is Grammys mm -hmm. and Tonys and whatever, Broadway and movies, and she's just incredibly talented. And uh, she's going to be there, and I'm going to be there. One of my rare performances. Well, that's reason enough just to go and that's alone. that's reason enough, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, DC LaRue, thank you so much for coming on Blazing Ride Radio. Well, been delightful. Believe it or not, I didn't even ask half of the questions I wanted to, even though I we've been sitting it. here for two well, hours. <laughs> well, you can do a part one and a part two. When I did yes. the, the, the interview with Discogs, yes. you know, we went on and on like this, and he says, you know, now I'm going to have to... It's also good, I'm going to have to do part one and part two. <laughs> so you can do the same thing. Sounds good. Sir, thank you so much. It's been an honor uh, and a pleasure. Uh, my, Appreciate my you coming pleasure. by. My pleasure.
But the news 